Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. This week, we've got for you um, an appearance on the podcast Trigonometry, which if you are not already subscribed to, I highly recommend you do. We're going to talk again about borderline apologia, the excuse-making Uh, particularly for abusive and disordered women that continues in the wake of the verdict in the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. Um, We will be introducing the disaffected substack for you. Got new stuff. And some viewer mail with an interesting lesson on millennial social mores and etiquettes. So let's get to some viewer mail first. Last week we talked about a teacher who put a picture of himself on social media and called himself a demi-boy and an NB and a non-binary and how proud and happy he was to be wearing ladies' panties under his clothes when he was going to teach his high school students and come out to them um, during a support group. And I talked about the typical way that these behaviors often escalate. Got an interesting email from a viewer. Josh, your show this week blew me away. I have never heard the term panty fetish sex pest. Well, that's because I just made it up. (laughs) Nor was I aware of the typical escalation of perverted behaviors. I didn't realize there was a name for the creep that broke into my childhood home one night and molested my 10-year-old sister. When the cops arrived, they found a collection of bras and panties outside our back door. Apparently, the pervert had broken into several homes around the neighborhood that night to steal underwear. By the time he got to our house, he wanted more than panties. I've always believed that he would have murdered my sister if she hadn't found the strength to break through her initial paralysis and scream. It's shocking that these perverts are making their way into our schools. You're performing an important public service by telling the truth about the danger they pose. Thank you. Uh, What I'm... Telling is is not new information. It's not something that I came up with, but it's new information to some people. And I've had some responses, both sort of at large and from people who watch the show that sometimes say, but we all know this, Josh. Um, You know, this is obvious to everybody. A lot of stuff isn't obvious to everybody. I promise you. I really do. I know that a lot of you are really clued into this stuff and you've been doing some of the same reading and you've had some of the same experiences that I have. But a lot of people haven't. And and I, mail like this reaffirms for me that, yes, indeed, there is value in explaining these things to people, even though for some of us they may seem basic. Remember, they weren't always basic for us. We didn't always know this stuff either. Um, thank you, viewer, very much for, for that letter. We're going to do a callback to a segment from last week as well about Yale public health epidemiologist Greg Gonzalez. You'll recall him. He is the one who thinks that we shouldn't stigmatize promiscuous gay sex on account of monkeypox because if we do that, we will endanger lives. So Greg, in a series of tweets, said that the answer to, I don't know, monkeypox, <laughs> I'm sorry, I still can't take monkeypox seriously. The answer to monkeypox was not to ask gay men to stop having sex at what are basically orgies, although he calls them large social events, uh, because that doesn't work. And I said that I'd bet that, although I didn't know this for sure, I would bet that Greg Gonzalez was all gung-ho for asking the entire world to shut down schools, jobs, and travel because of COVID. And that I was pretty sure he thought that would work. Well... I was right. Viewer Glenn, thank you very much, Glenn, writes, You featured some tweets by Greg Gonzalez in last night's podcast and speculated that he probably supported COVID lockdowns. Bingo. As this tweet below shows, he did support lockdowns but is now trying to lie about it. I thought you might like the confirmation. You thought correctly, Glenn. So... Here's Greg Gonzalez from just a few days ago in the year 2022. He tweets, It's no coincidence that the vile attacks I've gotten over the past 24 hours are tied to far-right shock jocks and the office of the governor of Florida. Here we go. 
They suggest I supported COVID lockdowns. Not true. And um, soft on monkeypox. Also not true. The facts don't matter. Yeah, the facts really do matter, though, Greg. So let's look at some facts, okay? So here's Greg from not this year, but August of 2020. Tweeting, Now we need a bill that allows us to safely and humanely get through a real substantial lockdown with the social and economic support ordinary Americans need and a massive massive influx of resources for testing and tracing at local levels. We haven't had this. Did you notice that he even bolded the word lockdown? That's how much he was for it. But if we're to look at him tweeting from just a few days ago, he did not support COVID lockdowns and people are lying about him, this vile attacks. No, no, Greg, it is you who is a liar. You're this week's liar. We don't do prizes here, so I just have to tell people you got the award. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. I do appreciate it, <laughs> especially when it makes me look smart. <laughs> okay, so trigonometry. If you don't already know about this podcast, please look it up. Um, not just because I was on it this week, but absolutely because I was on it this week. Um Constantine Kisson and Francis Foster are two, well, I don't know if they would still call themselves comedians. They're um, at least former comedians who got pretty much drummed out of it um, by wokeness. And they started a show um, to have a variety of guests on with expertise in very disparate knowledge areas, economics, psychiatry, social science, statistics, epidemiology, uh, cultural stuff very wide variety of people who get to expound on the topics of the day without fear of being torn down, without fear of being censored, and without fear of accusation that their opinions constitute a moral failing. It's, this show has done more for me personally. I said this during the show. Listening to the variety of people that they have had on their show over the past maybe two and a half years that I've been listening has been one of the most productive things for me in terms of broadening my exposure to a variety of political points of view and actual, objectively verifiable, true data about the world that I either did not know before or I did not wish to be true. It's been an important part of my political maturation. And they're right. They they. They say this is the show for uh, fascinating conversations with fascinating people, and their guests are fascinating. So I think you should check them out. I got to be on the show this week, uh, which was a treat. And I, I pulled a few things out to illustrate for you. Most of the feedback that I could see was, was very positive, which is great. But of course, being the person I am, it's the negative feedback that interests me the most. <laughs> And I explicitly said during the interview, during the conversation, actually, that I had with uh, those two gentlemen, I explicitly said, I'm not a mental health professional. I don't wish to be a mental health professional. And I do not wish people to perceive me as a mental health professional. I am not holding myself out. I'm telling you clearly right now that I am not a degreed pro. That's not what I do. But still, you know, of the... Um, of the pushback, there's always pushback. Not everybody likes everything. That's fine. Um, but the, the kind of pushback that irritates me is the stupid pushback. And here's some stupid pushback. A number of people acted like they didn't hear me say that. They acted as though I had falsely represented myself um, as somebody who was allowed to speak about this because I had a degree. I did no such thing. And they know that I didn't. Um, for a show that's about speaking freely, and, and I've noticed this with some other shows who have an audience um, and a theme that is similar, it's always surprising to me to see this minority of people who are absolutely dedicated to credentialism as, as your means of permission for speaking only when it comes to points of view that they don't personally like. They will claim to be free thinkers. They will claim that they don't want gatekeepers. But as soon as you have an opinion they do not wish you to have, they want your credentials. It's amazing. They will turn on a dime. 
And and basically the response was, you don't have a psych degree, so who do you think you are speaking about this? Well, I'm a human, and, and psychology and psychiatry are the formalized study of human emotion and human interaction and, and human development. And all of us humans, we all are part of that conversation. Psychiatry and mental health professionally does not own it, never has owned it, will never own it. We do not need their permission. We don't need anyone's permission. It's part of our birthright. We're humans. We are interested in each other's minds. <laughs> Sometimes they do it disingenuously when they push back. So here's here's one I want to show you uh, from Tim Birdsey. Where are my borderline glasses? I just had them a moment ago. <laughs> ah, there they are. I was going to say, I'm going to have to get through this whole segment not reading correctly, but I won't. So Tim Birdsey says, please can someone quickly outline for me this chap's professional clinical psychiatric credentials? I've not come across his work before. <laughs> Piss off, Tim. <laughs> Just say what you want to say. Say that you don't think that people should speak about this. Don't ask questions you know the answer to. Silly. But the... The most invested credentialism that I came across in this was from a mental health professional himself who wrote to me. I'm going to show you the subject line of his email. I'd like you to take a look at that, okay? Imagine that this was in your email box. Read that subject line and just think about what tone you would take from it. So it says, be, more, be careful with your words. That's the subject line. Let me read to you the email. Not going to put it on screen. Just going to read it to you. His name is David T. David Turnbull. Hi, Josh. Just wanted to say good on you for trying to bring some balance to the social justice warrior imbalance in the public discourse. I also have to caution you on your language regarding individuals with a personality disorder. I am an accredited mental health clinician and have experience working with people with a personality disorder, as well as being well-versed on the dsm 4 diagnostic criteria for PDs. Pardon me. Personality disorders are treatable and a wide variety of people with PDs have as wide a range of views as do well individuals. It is too simplistic to charge that those on the woke left are overtly affected by personality disorders. This also unfairly stigmatizes and pigeonholes those with personality disorders. Please become more acquainted with the research, and if you are really passionate about PDs, go back to college and contribute to further research. Kind regards, David Turnbull. Well, I'm good at reading comprehension, and part of reading comprehension is reading between the lines. I know that it is fashionable today to call that mind reading. It's fashionable to say that you're overreaching and that's always projection. No, it isn't. No, it's not. Especially not when you're experienced with this kind of thing. That compliment he gave me in the beginning wasn't genuine. It's a formulaic way to open a communication with a backhanded compliment to pre-justify yourself so that you can start criticizing, which is what you really wanted to do all along. Um, you start out appearing to give your correspondent a good boy pat on the head before you go in for the sting. It's manipulation. Um, and his read on my views isn't accurate. I think he thinks that I think people with personality disorders are always woke leftists, and I don't think that. And not only don't do I not think it, I don't think I said anything on trigonometry that implied that I thought all woke people have a personality disorder or all people with a personality disorder will have woke politics. And in fact, I'm sure I didn't imply that. Um, so remember how I asked you to note the subject line? I asked you to note it because the subject line was a command. It wasn't a cordial opener. It was a, it was a command. It was an instruction. Be more careful with your words. I don't respond well to that at all. Do you respond well to that sort of thing when someone who doesn't know you opens their first communication with you with an instruction to you? Does that seem like a good way to start a conversation? Well, I think, and I think he confirms, um, at any rate, let me get off that. I'm going to tell you my response and his response. And I'm doing this, I'm doing this because I want to show you a typical example of how when mental health professionals push back on me 
And not all of them do. There were a lot more of them, actually, in the comments who said, I'm a, a clinical social worker, I'm a licensed counselor, I'm a psychotherapist, and I agree with this. There were a lot more of them who said that than, than who took David's position. But of those who do, this is typical. So I wrote back to him and I said, thank you for writing, David. No, I will not be careful with my words. Do not issue commands, mind boundaries, and remember that you are not in a position of instruction or authority over anyone. I do not wish to, nor do I need to, go back to college to speak on this. Lay people with experience have a great role to play in helping others understand their abusive situations. Clinicians like you, as good as it is to have you to rely on, cannot do it all. And frankly, your field has done little to nothing at all to educate the general public about the effects of cluster B personality disorders. The kind of credentialism that you are suggesting that I need to indulge in is part of that. I wish you the best in your work. I'm going to continue exactly as I am now. Cheers, Josh Slocum. And here's his response to my response. <laughs> Take a look at the cutesy uh, emoticons that he puts in it. No worries, Josh. I don't command anyone. I just give some friendly professional advice. You knock yourself out talking as a lay person. I will stick to rigorous research and keep warning people about stigmatizing and ignorant voices such as yourself. Have a nice day. Smiley emoticon. Dave, kind regards. David Turnbull. <laughs> yeah, your advice isn't friendly. You do issue commands. And I knew you were going to respond this way. You absolutely fulfilled it. Um, this is not a nice man. This is a vain man. This is a territorial man who is used to speaking to other people as if he were their father and that he had the right to instruct them. He's upset that his turf is being impinged on. It's like a medieval trade guilders who want to report scoff laws for selling silks and sweet wines without Her Majesty's patent papers. He didn't stop there. I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure this is him because I noticed this in, in my social media feed. Um, a brand new YouTube account that it was just created that day with the initials DT, um, no subscriptions, and we'll put it on the screen here. Commenting on uh, my past episode called Cluster B Apologetics, he writes, you are projecting Joshua, exclamation point. Um, <laughs> there you have it. That's your example. Let's talk a little bit about the verdict in the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial here. So, and I realize something may have changed by the time I've, I've taped this, but the last I checked, last night as I was preparing, what I think I understand is that the jury awarded Johnny Depp $10 million, um, but the jury awarded Amber Heard $2 million in her countersuit because uh, one of Depp's lawyers, apparently, the court believes, defamed her by accusing her of setting up a hoax. So pretty large win for Johnny Depp, some win for Amber Heard. Uh, but the everyone hates women and no one believes women victims machine is still in overdrive. Here's Vice Magazine. The headline, I love it. The headline is, we've all failed Amber Heard. Okay. So, quote, as the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard defamation case plays out in a Virginia court, a separate trial has been playing out online where the verdict skews heavily towards Depp being the real victim, quote, unquote. <laughs> yeah, it skews. It skews. Like, he couldn't be the real victim. We have to put that in exclamation points. Or, excuse me, inverted commas, quotation marks. <laughs> These people... Quote, for weeks, memes and reels calling Heard a, quote, liar, a, quote, psychopath, and a, quote, manipulator have congested social media. They make fun of her hair, outfits, and facial expressions, and even at times wish her dead. On TikTok alone, the Justice for Johnny Depp hashtag has been viewed 16.3 billion times, compared to only 53.6 million for Justice for Amber Heard, not even close to 1% as many. <laughs> it's so high school. They like made fun of her hair and they they totally weren't making as much fun of Johnny Depp. It was so unfair, you guys. It was so lopsided. Um, well, you know why? 
because she is a liar. She is abusive. And a psychologist diagnosed her with two cluster B personality disorders right there on the stand, borderline and histrionic personality disorders. She is, in fact, as found by the court, a liar and a manipulator. Fact. She is also a shitter of beds. <laughs> Could be her Lord of the Ring names. Amber Heard, shitter of beds. Here's the she shitter herself in a statement after the verdict. <laughs> Teeny tiny type. The disappointment I feel today is beyond words. I'm heartbroken that the mountain of evidence still was not enough to stand up to the disproportionate power, influence, and sway of my ex-husband. I'm even more disappointed with what his verdict means for other women. Yeah, right. It is a setback. It sets back the clock to a time when a woman who spoke up and spoke out could be publicly shamed and humiliated. It sets back the idea that violence against women is to be taken seriously. What violence against you, Amber? I believe Johnny's attorneys succeeded in getting the jury to overlook the key issue of freedom of speech and ignore evidence that was so conclusive that we won in the UK. I'm sad I lost this case, but I am sadder still that I seem to have lost a right I thought I had as an American to speak freely and openly. Boo-hoo. We're going to pick up the theme of um, borderline and cluster B apologia after the break that we're going into. But I want to remind you, will you please share us on social media? Word of mouth is our very, very best exposure, especially since we are algorithmically oppressed. So put a link to our show on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, wherever you are. And if you don't want to do that, whisper it to a friend. We'll see you after the break. You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too, so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio too. We have audio only content that you won't find on any video platform, so don't miss out. Do you like Disaffected? Do you like it enough to help pay for it? We'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show. Donors get special access to our monthly Zoom hangouts. They're off camera and unscripted. We talk about what you want to talk about. There are two ways to join. Patreon users can go to patreon.com slash disaffected or visit subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Welcome back. So we're picking up on excuse-making for borderline and cluster B behavior. And of course, since we're doing so many callbacks to last week, I thought you might like to know what Dr. Jessica Taylor, who doesn't believe that borderline exists or that personality disorders exist at all, had to say about the Amber Heard Johnny Depp verdict. She says, I just want to say thank you to every woman who spoke out, who recognized how this was playing out, who stuck their neck out for normal women everywhere, who watched this case and saw themselves. You didn't have to, but you spoke up when others say si stayed silent. I saw each of you. Beware this Lady Pied Piper. Her message is appealing Two traumatized women, particularly young women who've had difficult or abusive experiences. Her message is attractive, but it's poison. Please be careful. And I pulled one more um, example of this didn't happen in the comments, um, but it came up on our Twitter feed when we uh, plugged the trigonometry episode that I appeared on this week. Um, Moderate amount of pushback from people who say they had borderline personality disorder, which always happens. And the reason I'm, I'm going to show this to you will become clear as I talk about it. So why don't I just talk about it? <laughs> so I'll put it up on the screen here. This is a user who calls herself Glow's Life. And she says, just because you've had a bad experience doesn't mean your experience applies to everyone's. I agree that many people with borderline personality disorder have exhibited abusive behavior, but not due to them being abusive. It's because we get triggered, people don't communicate with us, we are more, and it ends there. I didn't actually catch the next tweet fast enough because she blocked me. 
Um, I didn't catch enough to screenshot it, but I'm almost certain that the we are more was followed by we are more sensitive than other people because this is this is typical. Um, go back and listen to that. I'm going to read it to you again. I agree that many people with borderline personality disorder have exhibited abusive behavior, but not due to them being abusive. (laughs) We're abusive, but not because we're abusive. Okay. Okay. We get triggered because people... Here's the thing. I say it all the time. That is an explanation, and, and taken only as an explanation... There's a lot of truth to it. Yes. That that is typical of borderline. You get triggered and you, and you act out abusively. Um but it's not an excuse. Explanations are not excuses. You know, you can say I mean, imagine if you were trying to get out of a speeding ticket. You get pulled over for going 20 miles over the speed limit and you say to the officer, "I know I was speeding, but it's not because I'm a speeder. It's because I got a phone call or it's because I was upset about they were out of my favorite burger at Burger King. Or, I know I was a speeding, but it's not because I was a speeder. It's because I didn't look at the sign. That do- It doesn't matter. You still were speeding. You still have an outstanding ticket. And Glow's life, you still have an outstanding debt that you need to make good when you abuse people, regardless of the reasons you abuse them. Regardless. And, you know, we get triggered because people don't communicate with us. Well, have you thought of asking yourself why people don't communicate with you, whatever that may mean? What is it that you are doing that might make it difficult or unappealing for people to communicate with you? This is platonic borderline. This is absolutely classic. It's like textbook for this kind of response. You couldn't ask for a better example. Even when they're being bad, it's not because they're bad. Even when they scream, they're not screaming because they're screamers. Black is white. Up is down. People who love me hate me. I'm the most beautiful creature on earth. Oh, I'm so ugly. No one will ever date me. I hate you. Don't leave me. It reminds me of what a viewer wrote recently about my mother, and I shared it with you on the show. Um, When I asked, you know, did my mother ever really love me? Because there were times when she did things that appeared to show maternal concern and love. And the viewer's idea was that people like my mother create a temporary personality with temporary viewpoints to deal with an immediate situation that's in front of them. And then that they dissolve or that personality and those viewpoints dissolve when that acute situation is over and they adopt a new one or even an opposite one to deal with the next acute situation without any continuity between them. And I want to show you this Twitter user's bio because it's also typical, right? This is part of what I mean when I talk about judge books by their covers because human books choose their covers. They choose and design their own covers. They mean to communicate to you. So believe them when they're communicating to you. This is her profile. Borderline personality disorder and autism, 24 years old, queer, with a bunch of symbols, she, her pronouns, misandrist. Proudly misandrist. It's typical. I'm going to be as charitable. I'm, I wrestled with this. Um, I'm still wrestling with it. I'm going to be charitable here. I find this, I, individual people like this can't do anything to me, right? It's not like I'm offended that she's this way. I find it irritating, yeah. What bothers me about it is is how, how it collects in the aggregate because there are a lot of young women like this and there are a lot of mental health professionals who cater to young people like this who should know better, who are validating them and making them worse. That's what bothers me. She's just one example of a much bigger problem. But she's only 24 years old. I don't know anything about her, but I can make good statistical guesses, and I can make good guesses based on the limited information she's offered to me. I'll bet you she does have a trauma background. I'll bet you she has been abused. Um, Very likely by her father or another male authority figure in her life. 
and yeah, I find her way of relating irritating, but really deep down, I would like to see her get better. She is actually suffering. Even when she's being tedious, irritating, demanding, and unreasonable, she is mentally suffering. And her life does not have to be this way. She doesn't understand, I don't think yet, why her life is the way that it is. I think she appears to still be in the stage, and she may never leave this stage. Many borderlines never leave this stage, but some do. She's in the stage of nothing I do, I don't pay for anything I do, someone else pays for what I do. I wasn't being abusive, I was triggered. I was triggered because you wouldn't talk to me. She's still offloading all of her own actions onto someone else for their responsibility. She needs to be able to move past that. She can get better. Whether she will is an open question, but I don't have a lot of hope for that. Because if she has a therapist, and she probably does, you know, people with her demographic, uh, demographic, yes, profile, usually do. But today... I think it's more likely that her therapist is probably a younger woman who coddles and validates her, probably gives her a safe space to vent and cry, but may not hold her to account in a meaningful way that can establish a structure for thinking and relating differently, changing that pattern. I don't know. This is all a guess. Might not be true about her, but it, it is a very typical borderline presentation. Um. And so there you have it. Next topic. We have a Substack now. So if you're just jonesing to get more of my mouth uh, running away, but through my fingertips, check it out. Um, as it goes along, I'm going to get into more details about the various cluster B personality disorders and use some examples and exercises. So I'll be able to use a writing space in a way uh, to complement, I hope, what I do on the show here. It's the Disaffected newsletter, and go to disaffectedpod, disaffectedpod.substack.com. Would love it. Um, sign up for a free subscription. I am also taking all the content that's on there, and it's going on to Patreon and to Subscribestar. For all of you who financially support this show, you get this content, too. I'll just put it up there for you, because eventually I, I, I'm going to put up a paid subscription. Some of the stuff on Substack, you will have to pay for it to see it. Um, but but we are remembering those of you who've been with us and who are helping us pay for this. So check out Patreon and, and uh, Subscribestar. There, I think uh, you got three fresh articles as of this morning. And other housekeeping, several of you have asked how you can give us one-off donations, one-time donations. You may not want to sign up for um, a monthly service like Patreon and Subscribestar. You can do that, and we'd really appreciate it. The easiest way to do that um, is PayPal. Yes, yes, I know. I know that some of you have chosen not to use PayPal. We can address alternatives in another format. Um, but if you do use PayPal... Our PayPal email address that you can send money to is us at disaffected.fm. That's us, the letters U-S, at disaffected.fm. And thank you very much. Let's talk about millennial etiquette. I'm going to spend, okay, yeah, I'm going to spend the rest of this segment on this. I met a viewer. I'm going to call her Grace. It's not a real name. I just don't have permission to identify her yet, so I won't do that. I met her at the Better Discourses event in Fort Worth that I was at about a month ago, and uh, we had a great time talking outside uh, during the breaks and getting ready to go to dinner, and she was kind enough to send me a really detailed letter about the social assumptions and behaviors that millennials have that baffle older people like me and maybe uh, people like you who are older, and I think it's worth going through them. I've excerpted it. I, I, it's not the whole thing, but I've got the core nuggets here for you. So Grace says, growing up, uh, she breaks this down into four categories. So we're going we're to go through the four. Number one, growing up, we were told that we could obtain or be everything we could ever want to be until we started until we started only hearing the exact opposite. Grace continues, I wish I could pinpoint the exact year this started being widespread, but to me it seemed to be around 2008. 
This messaging was in complete contrast to what I remembered hearing from parents, teachers, and society at large during kindergarten through 12th grade. Suddenly, instead of hearing about how the world had problems, but it was still our oyster, we were all hearing that the world was dying, barren, and it was entirely greedy humanity's fault. The wokest of my old friends are still attending college, and as society is finally learning en masse that correlation is not a coincidence. I currently believe that many of the worst millennial meltdowns that can be seen online can be directly attributed to this messaging shift that only got exponentially roided up over the past five years. Building off of more conspiratorial right-wing perspectives, an argument could be made that we were in fact primed for this, but I feel this may be giving some parts of society more credit than they're due. Interesting. Number two, millennials were mostly raised by themselves, the internet, and each other. I was raised by a stay-at-home mom in a two-parent household and grew up being moved several times across four states. Aside from my younger brother, I have never met another millennial who was raised that way, and at this point, I don't expect to. For the rest of my peers, it was considered normal to rarely catch sight of their full-time working parents, even on weekends, once they aged out of the daycare bracket. Every second they could spend out of their family home with friends in similar circumstances, they did, especially if their home life sucked especially hard due to additional neglect or abuse. If they weren't physically checked out, they were mentally, spending all their time online messaging friends alone in their rooms. My oh-so-emotionally charitable father had a favorite term for this, idiots raising idiots. This has resulted in staggering numbers of young people valuing their friends way over their families since no real familiar relationships were ever maintained or in some cases never developed with them while they were growing up. Add in the fact that millennials aren't creating traditional families of their own and you get a situation where the prospect of losing your friends is suddenly the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you socially. This terrifying prospect gets compounded further if you happen to come from a home where even if you had developed relationships with your family, there was abuse. This makes waking up other millennials exceptionally difficult and I currently do not have an answer for it outside of maybe millennials growing healthy families of their own, which I don't think anyone should hold their breath waiting for. Number three, sustained eye contact is considered aggressive, rude, and simply not done. Oh, I want to say one thing. I actually want to go back a bit. Millennials mostly raised by themselves, the internet, and each other. That's a commonality we share millennials, you and and Gen Xers like me, with the exception of the internet, to a great degree, we raised ourselves and each other too. We were the first latchkey kid generation, and it sounds like you inherited a lot of that too. Okay, so back to number three. Sustained eye contact is considered aggressive, rude, and simply not done. Here's Grace's explanation. This is an Eastern cultural value that millennials seem to have absorbed, partly out of shunning Western values as a general rule to live by and partly out of social conditioning. It is always anticipated that only other millennials will want to speak to us. The unfortunate natural result of this is that millennials are often socially awkward due to only socializing with other millennials, mostly through text, to the point where talking to someone face-to-face is weird, especially if it's somehow not another millennial. I'm breaking in here. Yes, I'm so glad you see this. We older people are not making this up. We get this. We we feel it. When we're trying to talk to somebody at the cash register, a younger person or a millennial or a Zoomer these days, we're not making it up. They are acting like it's really uncomfortable and making their skin crawl to have to look at us. We think that's pretty goddamn weird, too. (laughs) Back to Grace. There is a general baseline expectation that outside of some utility, transactionally based want or need, other people will not talk to us and that they'll likely be rude if they do. Mm. This one in particular is so baked into youth culture by now. I would honestly not be surprised if some millennials and Zoomers cannot articulate 
it if asked directly about it. You'd probably just hear that expecting eye contact is, quote, weird and, quote, uncomfortable at best. Yeah, I believe that. I'm got to tell you, I'm really, really sick of hearing millennials and Zoomers talk about what makes them feel weird and uncomfortable. Real sick of it. I get it. I understand. I'm glad I'm getting this lesson. But Jesus Christ, it's annoying the piss out of me. Um, this is what I was talking about last week uh, about younger people in technology. The idea that that old technology is weird and sort of embarrassing and the, the ways that people held themselves, the way they spoke to other people were weird and uncomfortable. This is exactly what I was talking about. We've got a problem here. Millennials and, and people in the generation below them don't want to hear this, but I think they need to hear it. You don't get to make older generations conform to the new world that you are trying to create. You don't get to do that. The answer is no. You, not me, you have a duty to do some assimilating to the world that you're inheriting. You are not the first creator of the world, and the whole world is not going to be made in your image. I know this sounds shocking to some of you, but, and whether you can articulate this or not, and I'm not talking to you, Grace, I know you don't see it this way, but your cohort generally does. You believe that you're entitled to remake the world and that older people better get with it. Well, you better reverse that, okay? That ain't how it works. And you were the first generation who believed to the degree that you do that you had this right and that it was normal. It's not. You don't have that right. You are going to assimilate yourselves to the world that exists to at least the same degree that I, as an older person, am going to have to accommodate myself to the way the world is changing. And I do have that obligation as well. But it's only going in one direction right now. And it's only going in your direction. The more you do this, the more people like me are going to push back at you and say, who do you think you are? Don't tell me that that makes you feel weird and uncomfortable. Stop it. It's kind of reversal, really, is what it is. It's one more from Grace. Number four. Millennials and Zoomers are largely used to being ignored or not listened to, so we do not expect it that is being listened to. And she says, if nothing else, I learned at the new um, at the Better Discourses event that I am definitely not immune to this last one, nor am I apparently as much of a reformed cynic as I thought. As your reaction, she's talking about me, your reactions to me genuinely surprised me. Listening is not a skill I see getting practiced by most people of any age in any situation regularly, never mind anyone genuinely actively appearing to give a shit about causes or people outside of a hashtag. When it comes to meeting online personalities of any type, I anticipate encountering plastic, even if it's someone I've spoken to a bit before. Well, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. But Grace, I got to tell you, that made me feel really sad. I mean... Now, it, it made me feel sad that that's an expectation uh, that you guys have, that, that no one genuinely wants to listen to you. And, and sad that that's been your experience, that you don't get listened to. It should not be this way. And I did not know this. This is genuinely educational to me. I thank you for taking the time to tell me this. I listened to you when we spoke because I'm interested in people. And what you have to say is intelligent, insightful, and worth listening to, worth starting a conversation about. And you took the time to write this all out for me in detail, cluing me into an outlook that I didn't know about. So I thank you. She closes, then we're going to close this segment. She's rounding up these four principles that we've discussed. I refer to the combination of the above four elements as the clubhouse effect. Partly as a reference to the Lost Boys from Peter Pan. Nice. I feel it actually ties in nicely to your description of today's youth being an uncontacted tribe. You're not wrong. For all intents and purposes, most of us can be considered to be socially inhabiting lofty, well-insulated treehouses far above the forest floor of human society. It feels like I've been running around that forest floor alone trying to figure out who else is down here for the past two years. Well, we older people, Grace, we are here too, running around on the forest floor. We're with you. I think of you and people like you 
in this context as part of the same tribe, if you will, uh, for these purposes that I belong to and that, and that adults, older adults like me belong to. Real people, real grown-up people with real concerns who care about where our society is going, and I'm glad you're part of that. Time for a break. We'll do the final segment when we come back. You know how podcasters are always asking you to hit the subscribe button? Well, this is us asking you to take a minute right now and be sure you've hit subscribe on your favorite video platform. Click that notification bell too so you never miss our newest content. And don't forget to subscribe on audio too. We have audio only content that you won't find on any video platform, so don't miss out. Do you like Disaffected? Do you like it enough to help pay for it? We'd love to have your support to grow and maintain this show. Donors get special access to our monthly Zoom hangouts. They're off camera and unscripted. We talk about what you want to talk about. There are two ways to join. Patreon users can go to patreon.com disaffected or visit subscribestar.com disaffected. Welcome back. Ready for a new supermarket story? Because I'm ready to tell you one. I love that you guys said that you like these. Because I really like telling them. <laughs> and if you want to visualize these encounters, most of them take place at the Price Chopper on the corner of Williston and Hinesburg Roads in South Burlington. It is a ghetto-ass supermarket. It's just that it happens to be a block away from my office, and it's the closest one. And it's small enough that it's not like a warehouse you have to go through, but the price you pay is that of all the price choppers, this one is the one that gets neglected, never gets repaired, uh, half out of stock. They're just letting it all go to hell. So I'm checking out of the grocery store this week, and the clerk is a young man of about 18 years old. And as I'm paying, uh, he's he's put my stuff through, and I'm sticking my card in the machine. A woman of about 60 years old comes over and begins to put her items down on the conveyor belt. And I got an instant vibe from her, a clean freak phobic vibe, just from looking at her because of the way she carried herself and the way she was dressed. Um, Everything she had on, pants, blouse, uh, socks, and shoes were blindingly white. Like, I mean, it wasn't nurse's clothing, but it was like a a nurse's bleached and starched um, 1950s sterile appearing outfit. And a, and a brand new white N95 mask. And, and just something in her bearing telegraphed anxiety and potential trouble. Well, I was right. Because of course I was. <laughs> As the clerk started to go for her order, was reaching his hand out to grab her stuff and put it over the scanner, she said, I'm going to need you to put on gloves. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I stopped, you know, I, I, I drew out, you know, getting my receipt and stuff because I wanted to see what was going to happen here. The clerk said he didn't have any gloves and that he wasn't going to be putting them on. And she said to him, my brother is at home, deathly sick with an autoimmune condition, and I'm responsible for him and I'm allergic to many foods and I can't touch them and I really need you to wear gloves. Now, this woman herself was not wearing gloves. She touched all the shelves where she got the items that comprised her order without wearing gloves. What she has is a phobia. Perhaps it's hypochondria. Perhaps it's related to OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Maybe part of it is that she's a pain in the ass. So she started picking up her items and doing, I'll just go to someone else then. Okay. He told her that no other cashiers in the store were going to put on gloves for her. So she puts her stuff back down and she says, I'm going to need you to get a manager. And I said, oh, no, not tonight. This was the part where I could not hold it in. I rolled my eyes at her so she could see it, and I said, oh, for God's sake, honestly, in that tone of voice. 
And then I looked at her. And then everyone else turned and looked at me. Because I was making a scene, not that lady, right? I was the troublemaker. I'm used to it. I couldn't make out everything that she said back to me because she was speaking so rapidly that it was almost like she was sped up. Um, but it was it was like, my brother, I'm responsible for him, and if he dies, and my allergies, and I can't, and you have to, and... I did not yell at her. I didn't use vulgarities or obscenities. I saved that for you. <laughs> but I did put on grown-up, male, stern, teacher voice. And I said, Madam, stop it and stop it right now. This is not necessary. You do not get to command him to wear gloves and you do not get to turn this into a manager's complaint. This is unreasonable. And she looks at me like, well, yeah, and yeah, I know. I mean, it's that's not what I said is not the done thing. But you know what? How she behaved didn't used to be the done thing. And refusing to put any social pressure on people who are bordering on abusive in public, people used to push back on this more than they do now. I didn't abuse her. But, oh, yeah, I did speak loudly enough to draw attention to her, and I did speak candidly enough to put a shocked look on her face. I meant it. I didn't want this to be comfortable for her. She responded to me again with this rapid fire, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I, I, you know, I just said, again, stop it. What you're doing is not normal. Your mask is not doing anything real. Your gloves are not going to do anything real. You are not going to kill your brother. And it is certainly not our responsibility. You are not actually protecting anybody. It's been two years and it's time for you to join us. Come back to normal with us. We are back to normal. You can come here too, and you need to come with us. I just said, have a nice day, and I left because I made my point. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted that to happen to her, and I wanted her to experience it in front of her peers, in front of other adults. And I wanted other people to see an example. I'm sure there are many people in there who thought I was just the worst, most abusive, nasty, how dare I. That's absolutely fine. They don't have to do what I do. But I know from experience that there were some people in there who were saying, thank God someone finally said it. I'm not trying to be, I'm not telling you this story so you can be like, oh my God, you're so great, you're so great. And I don't do this shit to get, well, it's not like I get applause for it, right? You know I don't get positive social feedback for this, right? People aren't clapping for me. They're not smiling at me. They're indicating fear or discomfort or disapproval. So I'm not getting something good out of this. I do it because I think it's necessary. Somebody has to. And I'm one man. And all I can do is what one person can do. But I have to believe that these things will have at least a tiny knock-on effect, even if it only happens inside someone's head. Maybe someone in that crowd of people will relate this to a relative they're dealing with and have a little bit more of a straight back the next time. Maybe they won't put up with it so much. Because in a normally functioning society, that what I did was, yes, it was confrontational. I don't prefer that if there are other options, but I'm not afraid of it and I don't apologize for confrontation. I don't think confrontation is evil. I think it has a place. But in a normally functioning society, this would not be my preference. In a normal society, we would need less of this because there would be smaller but consistent social pressure and guidelines and boundaries that would nip this stuff in the bud before it becomes this lady. It's so... You know, when I think about... When I think about the people... I don't know. When I think about the people... You know, the couple times that I've done this... You know, I've told you a couple stories of doing this. And all the adults who stand there and stare at me like I had two heads, I, I swear to God, it reminds me, it does remind me of, of, of 
a childhood in which the child who is the target of mistreatment by the parent is considered the villain and all and the other siblings stand around and look at you like why did you make mom do that you know why are you asking for it how in holy hell have so many adult americans become basically functionally abused children 24 hours a day who are flipping terrified to assert the most minimal grown-up boundary for other people. Oh, it's frustrating. Well, that's enough of that. That's your grocery story. And I'm going to end the show with a goodbye. A goodbye to Lily, my cat. One of my three cats. This week, Lily died. Um... We, and we is my housemate Mary and I, uh, my friend and longtime housemate Mary, we share the responsibility of the three cats. They're our cats collectively. But I picked out Shredder and Mina, and Mary picked out Lily, and Mary was Lily's primary human. It, um, it was a difficult and protracted death that we had to watch for about 16 hours straight overnight. Um, one of the worst I've seen, and I've seen a lot of these. Thank goodness the house call vet was able to come at 9 in the morning. Um, but I I would have done almost anything to put Lily out of her misery if I'd had the power to do so. So um, I know that there's a cultural joke about obsessive single people and their pets, especially single women and their cats. Treating them like children. I'm not, they're not children. They're not my children. I know they're not my children, but they are my family without apology. They're part of my family, just as much as Mary is. They are not humans, but they do have relationships with us. And they love us like we love them in their own way, uncomplicatedly and honestly. When they're displeased with you, they tell you directly. They don't usually play games. They don't lie and maneuver. Except when they're trying to get extra food. They absolutely lie, and they do it shamelessly. <laughs> they all pretend to be starving. <laughs> when you have a small creature who relies on you, depends on you for sustenance, it hurts terribly when, you, when they suffer and you can't help them. It really hurts. And Lily was our mama cat. She was the mama cat of the house. She was very attuned to human needs. Any person, whether it was me and Mary or some, you know, a guest we were having over, any person who was in emotional or physical distress, Lily instantly took to them. She would trot quickly over. She would look at you and meow and then climb up on your lap and purr. I've seen her do it to perfect strangers to her. Don't tell me that this cat didn't understand distress and didn't care about it. She did. And don't tell me she wasn't offering comfort because she was. She was also a complete whore about socks. <laughs> Every morning, we would wake up to her yowling like a queen in heat over these socks that she hunted out of somebody's laundry pile. She really did. If you've never heard a female cat in heat... Well, you'll never forget it once you hear it. Uh, she wasn't in heat, but you would think she was. Uh, and every morning and mostly every evening, she would leave a sock or a pair of socks in front of Mary's door or in front of my bedroom door. She hunted them for us. Um, here's Lily on the day that we adopted her at the shelter in 2016. This is Mary with Lily. Um, and Lily really did pick her. Um, and here is another... Here's a picture of her in her prime, having hunted a hat, which is as good as a sock if it has a pom-pom on it, and this hat had a pom-pom. Um, and yes, if you're, if you're looking at her picture on the screen, her eyes really were that jewel-colored green. Greenest cat's eyes I've ever seen in real life. She was beautiful. Uh, we thought she was 13 or 14 based on the age that was reported to us when we adopted her. But of course, at the shelter, they didn't really know, and when the... 
We had a house call vet, a vet who does euthanasia at home. When she came over and, and examined her, she said she thought she was probably significantly older than that. But it's really hard to tell with cats. And especially by the time Lily got to the end, she was down to about five pounds. She was nothing but dehydrated bones. Um, yeah, we're talking about death. And I got a little more to say about death. I have some suggestions, something that I ask you to think about. Some of you, I, I, I know, actually having mentioned, talked about this with you, I know that some of you do something similar. But I have some suggestions for you, if you have pets, about ways to make their death and the aftermath of their death as good as it can be, at least the way I see it. Um, this is my way of dealing with dying pets. I've been through it many, many times. If you can... Get a traveling vet. Get a vet who does house calls who will come to the house and administer the drug that will put them to sleep. I, that will kill them. I, the euphemisms. You know. It's a mercy killing, but that's what it is. You're, you're putting them to death. It's stressful and scary for a pet to have to go to the vet's office, especially, and, and for you. It's, it's stressful for you. Um... I, I won't do it anymore. I will not make my animals have to spend the last day of their lives very sick in a strange and sterile environment. I will not do it. And I have held my cats in my arms as they've been injected and put to death. And it's hard, but it is love. I think we have a duty to witness and be there and offer comfort. If these poor creatures can suffer the way they do, we owe it to them to be there with them. Don't look away. Don't you dare leave the room. Hold that animal. It's your duty. Comfort them and love them at the end. Another thing that I do, and I have a backyard. Uh, I know this may not work for all of you, um, but I do home burial with pets. And the morning of or the night before, I dig the grave. And I actually dug the grave when I got home from work the day before. I, I just the urge seized me as soon as I got out of my car before I even took the groceries out. Yes, it was that grocery trip with that lady. Um, I dug the grave because I knew we'd need it the next day. It was good to get it out of the way. It's good, honest work, too. Yeah. It makes you tear up because you're digging a hole that you're going to put somebody you love in. Life, life hurts. Death hurts. This is honest. It's good work. Of course, what we have to do now, naturally, is, since we have four cats back there, is erect a weathered, wooden, hand-lettered sign that says Pet Cemetery to discomfort passersby and children in the neighborhood. <laughs> um, the last thing I do before burial is I leave the body out for the other animals to, to sniff and check out. Um, I usually use um, an old sheet, a cotton sheet that I've kept aside as a winding sheet, but I'll, I will put the cat on there. And after your pet dies, um, arrange them the way you want them arranged, you know, um, curled up or however they are. Do it as soon after death as possible because rigor mortis sets in within an hour uh, with small pets and then you won't be able to move them after that. Um, I do this because I know that animals... Um, I don't know how they understand death, but I know they have a concept of it. I've observed it. And I think that when these animals have a friend or a companion in the house, they have a right to know why she's not there anymore. So I put Lily's body out that morning. It was 9 o'clock when, um, when the vet came over. And Mina and Shredder checked her out. They had been checking her out, but they left her alone because she was in her dying corner. They sniffed her, her body, and... That was that. And so we wrapped her up and um, got ready to bury her. This doesn't always happen, but when a pet dies, their bowels and bladder may let go. Don't be surprised by that. It's nothing you haven't cleaned up before. If you've ever changed a baby's diaper, you know everything you need to know about dealing with a, uh, a little kitty or a doggy after death. And the other thing that I suggest you do is make some morbid, humorous jokes. Laughter and tears go together. 
when I talked about Lily's, when I mentioned Lily's death online, some of my friends shared some of their own funny stories of death. And my Twitter pal, who calls herself Stepford Wife, said that when her dad died, half of his ashes ended up in a coffee canister that looked suspiciously like the urn that the rest of his ashes were in. And yes, what you suspect happened is in fact what happened. So obviously the way to treat this is to say, we secretly replaced their usual coffee with new cremains crystals. Let's see if they notice. <laughs> so we buried Lily, we put two pairs of her favorite hunting socks with her and she's back there with the rest of the kitties. Thanks for listening. Godspeed, Lily. We love you. And to all of you out there, thank you for joining me. I'll see you next week. <laughs>